At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. From 1940 to 1945, uh, the world was at war. Germany, uh, hoping to spread its power and ideology throughout pretty much the whole world, had decided to go to war with everyone. And did you know that as these soldiers marched, as the Nazi soldiers marched down their path of death and destruction, as they raped and pillaged, as the Nazi soldiers sought to wipe out entire people groups, inscribed on their belts was this phrase, Gott mit uns, translated, God is with us. This is what the Nazi soldiers believed as they carried out these terrible atrocities. They believed God was with them. Or how about this in the war between the states or the the Civil War? Both the North and the South said that God was on their side. While the South enslaved God's children, while the South enslaved African Americans, they falsely believed God was with them. While the North went through and burned cities and killed civilians, they also claimed God was with them. Why would any army want to say that God was on their side? Well, it's an attempt to harness the power of God. That's why they did that. That's why they're saying God is with us. It's an attempt to take the power of God and to harness it and to use it for their own good. But it's not just back then in in the wars of old. Many people still today (coughs) overtly try to harness the power of God. The small business owner who comes up short at the end of the quarter might throw up a prayer to the big man upstairs, even though he hasn't prayed all quarter long. Now that his business is in trouble, he will pray. Or maybe you're like me and, you know, you see the blue lights in, in, the, in the rearview mirror and you get pulled over and all of a sudden you're the most praying person on the planet <laughs> as you beg God to get you out of the ticket or the person who receives bad news from the doctor. And though they live their life as a practical atheist, now they're suddenly a prayer warrior. See, this is what man-made religion at its heart seeks to do. It seeks to control God. Religion is a, is a worldwide phenomenon. If you look at uh, some of the oldest buildings that, that we can find, some of the oldest structures man has made, they're temples. And, and you can go to people groups that are, uh, you know, far away from anyone else, deep in the jungle, and they have formed their own uh, religion. And so in these man-made religions, what you'll find is people giving sacrifice. You'll find people burning incense. 
Uh, you'll find people sitting for days or hours trying to reach enlightenment. All of that, all of that, all of those components of man-made religion is to control God. That, that, that's why we, you know, pe people will sacrifice grain to the rain God so that he'll send more rain so that the crops will grow. It's all an attempt to control God. And sadly, this idea of harnessing or controlling the power of God has crept into mainstream Christianity. So because I go to church, because I take communion, God is now obligated to work favorably for me. Church family, Christianity is not about getting God to do something, but it's about what Jesus has already done. Amen. It, it, it's not that, that we're going to sit and have an all night prayer vigil. We're going to, you know, we're going to fast. We're going to do all these things to try to get God to do something. We're excited and we're here this morning to celebrate Jesus work on the cross, what he's already done. We're not, we're not foolish enough to think that we can manipulate God, are we? Well, sometimes, sometimes we are. Today, we're going to see a people group who assumes God is for them. They assume the presence and the power of God. They assume the glory of God will help them, but they presume falsely. They believe, as they're defeated in battle the first time, they think, what do we need to do? Well, if we get the box, if we get the ark, right, if we get that, then we will have the power of God. They presume on the power of God. They presume on the glory of God, and they march faithfully into battle with great optimism because they believe God is going to help them and they are defeated even worse. I mean, this today, church family, is a very, very sad story. It's a, it's a very sad story. Just look at the way the story ends. I mean, look at the end of chapter four. The, the story ends this way. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Glory departed, the most sacred religious artifact that they had captured and gone, chapter over. Moral of the story, disobey God and his presence or his glory is removed. Have you ever disobeyed God? Do you see how this is a sad story? Do you see how this is a terrible story? For, it opens up with 4,000 Israelites dying. Then 30,000 Israelites die. Then Eli, the high priest, dies. Then his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die. Then a woman dies during childbirth. And the, the chapter ends with God has departed. This is a sad story. This is a, a terrible story. Again, what this chapter is teaching us is if we disobey God, he removes his presence. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Aren't you glad that 1 Samuel chapter 4 isn't the conclusion of the Bible? Aren't you glad there's a 2 Samuel and, and a 1 Kings and a 2 Kings and the rest of the Old Testament on into the New Testament where Jesus, the glory, the glory that has departed here, the glory is made manifest and comes to dwell among us. And so the glory that was lost here, the glory returns in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so now God's presence is with us, and it's not based on our obedience. This is the gospel of grace. 
The gospel of grace says that once we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our God, as, as our Master, once we receive Him, then He never departs. The glory doesn't depart based on our obedience. But we have His presence. We have the glory of God based on His work on the cross, based on His merit. That is the gospel of grace. So if you're here this morning taking notes... Jot this down. Take heart, dear Christian. The glory of God is with you in the person and work of Jesus. Take heart, dear Christian. The glory of God is with you in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't know what you came in here with this morning. I know many of you. And I know the pain that you walked in with this morning. I know many of you, I know the battle that rages in your home, in your heart, at your work, but I don't know all of you. But here's what I can say with great confidence to every Christian listening to me now. Take heart, because the glory of God is with you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in the victory or in the perceived failure, God has not departed. God has not left you. God has not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you because of the work of Jesus on the cross. So that's the whole sermon. What we're going to do now is walk through the text, uh, and, and I want to show you that. So if you would, open your Bibles, and we're going to travel through this chapter together. I would like for you to follow along with me so you can make sure I'm not making it up as I go. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Again, if you're new with us or you're visiting this morning, this is how we uh, generally preach through books of the Bible. Okay, so uh, we'll pick a book, and we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, until we have uh, completed that, uh, that section of Scripture, uh, and that is what we will continue to do this morning. And so we've already traveled through uh, this book thus far, up through chapter 3, and so this morning we'll be in chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4, I'm starting in verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. As this chapter opens, we learn two things. Samuel is a full-fledged prophet. He is the priest over the nation of Israel. We have seen him thus far in chapters 1 through 3. We've seen him as a little boy in the temple. We've seen him under the tutelage of Eli. We've seen him grow in wisdom in the Lord. And then we saw uh, God call him. Uh, and, and now Eli is not at the temple, but Samuel is. It says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So now he is the priest presiding over the nation, and his word, uh, his prophetic word, is now being spoken over the people. Now, this will kind of come to light a little bit more as we move on, but this is the last time we hear of Samuel in the whole rest of the chapter. That's it. We hear no more from the man of God. We hear no more of the word of God. Here's the other thing that we learn. We learn that Israel is battling against the Philistines. Now, it doesn't explain to us why they're at war. It just states that they are. 
We can assume that they're jockeying for territory or resources, uh, but we don't exactly know why, uh, but we do know that they are they are at war. Verse 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. Again, this should be shocking to us if we understand all of the promises of God. God has promised to uh, grow this nation. Uh, God has promised to expand their territory. God has promised them a promised land. And so when we read that they were defeated, this, this is shocking. Why are God's chosen people, God's blessed people here being defeated? And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000, 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They enter into this battle, and the battle does not go well. They lose 4,000 men. I mean, that, that's not a number to sneeze at. 4,000 Israelite men die on the field of battle. And so, I mean, what went wrong? Was it, was it a general who just didn't have his stuff together and a, a bad battle plan? Was it weak soldiers? The soldiers weren't prepared? Was it lack of resources? They didn't have the right weapons? I mean, who, what, what went wrong? Well, it seems the elders have a solution. And the elders, these, these older guys who are, are probably in political power, probably in some type of religious power, they, they come up with this idea. Look, <clears throat> look at what they say. And the people came to the camp. The elders of Israel said, why has the Lord, not the Philistines, they don't say, how did the Philistines defeat us? Their response is to ask this question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Do you see how, it, like the Philistines are, are almost playing this really passive role in the text. The Israelites are defeated before or almost in front of the Philistines. It's almost like the Philistines are just kind of like having a picnic on the battlefield, you know, eating some chicken wings, you know, drinking Kool-Aid, uh, you know, having some, you know, uh, you know, picnic style, and the Israelites are just getting defeated, and they're just kind of sitting there watching. Why has the Lord defeated us? They're absolutely right. The elders know, listen to this, the elders know that everything comes from or through the hand of God. The elders know that everything comes from or through the hand of God. We believe that God is sovereign. God is sovereignly controlling his universe. God is never out of control. God is never confused. God is never caught off guard. He is sovereignly controlling everything that happens everywhere, yet God is not responsible for evil. Well, what do you mean? Well, God is not evil. God does not cause evil, yet he is in control of everything that happens. Therefore, everything either comes directly from the hand of God or it passes through the hand of God. So the defeat that they suffered was the defeat that came from God. They understood and they 
begin with the proper position, but they don't take it far enough. They don't ask the next question. The first question, why has the Lord defeated us? Which should lead them to a natural response. They should ask this next question. Okay, step one, God has defeated us. The next question that they should have asked that they don't ask is, what have we done? They don't move beyond why did God defeat us into the next position, the next proper question, which should have been, how did, what have we done? What have we done to break our covenant with God? How, how did we mess this thing up? And the reason that they don't want to ask that question is because that question would lead them to change in their life, which they were unwilling to make. That's why they don't want to. Why did God do this? Anybody ever asked that question before? Why is God letting this happen? What's going on? Without ever actually taking the next step to say, in what ways have I disobeyed God? Just like them, the reason that we don't want to ask that question is because it would, necessitate, it would necessitate change that would cause us to be uncomfortable. I wonder, church family this morning, I wonder if we have the guts to ask God with clarity and honesty, oh God, in what ways have I disobeyed you? In what ways have I ignored you? In what ways have I neglected you? I wonder if we have the guts to ask that question. Again, the reason that we do not like to ask that question is because it will cause you to change things, things that will make you uncomfortable. You see, there are several issues that kind of come into play. The, the first issue is we just think that God hates us and there's no use trying to change his mind. Right? When, when it comes to changing ourselves, figuring out how we can get back into rhythm or harmony with God or back into align with God, the first problem that we face is some of us just believe God hates us and there's no changing it. Um, I've been told often that I don't look like a pastor. Um, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Uh, a lot of times, like the main way that you guys see me is up here with like a jacket on and, you know, I'm carrying a Bible and so it's kind of a dead giveaway. Uh, but, you know, like out, out walking around, a lot of people don't realize that. And so uh, a lot of people are caught off guard when we get into conversations. And, you know, they'll, uh, of course, men are always measuring each other, you know, up to see who's better. Um, and so the, the big question is always, well, what do you do? You know, that men believe that their work defines them uh, improperly, but that's what we often believe. So the question is always, you know, what do you do? So I was having a conversation with a guy, and he says, well, what do you do? I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm a pastor. And of course, he laughed and said, no, seriously, what do you do? And I said, no, really, I'm a pastor. And, and he said, well, hey, pastor, don't try to convert me. I already know I'm going to hell. This was his position. He just assumed that he was a terrible sinner and God hated him and there was no changing God's mind. The, the other problem that we face when it comes to us actually trying to change ourselves is we think that God is just fine with us. So you have this one camp over here that believes that, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm just a horrible sinner. I know I'm going to hell. You know, I'll be down there with all my buddies, you know. Um, there's this one side of the coin where people just believe God hates them and there's no changing it. And then there's another position where people believe that God's just fine with them. They, they've made it, you know, me and God, we've got an understanding, which means they pretty much get to live their life however they want to and God's just fine with it. We encounter both of these things here 
in the South, if you're taking notes, the classic error of people in the South is to live their lives however they want and to try to sprinkle in a little religion along the way. This is the classic error of people in the South. There's a church on every street corner. Most of us grew up going to church, being drugged to church. Granny made you go. Your mom made you go, whatever. And so we have these religious trappings, this, this kind of air. It's just in the air that we breathe. You know, oh, I'm praying for you, brother. God bless you. Oh, bless her heart. You know, it's, just, it's in the air. It's, in the, it's a part of the culture. Religion is a part of the culture. And so the classic error of people in the South is just to live however they want to and just try to sprinkle in a little religion as they go. As a pastor, I see this all the time. I, I see it when, when people will come to me and they say, hey, we just had a baby. Will, will you dedicate our baby? This family doesn't attend church. They don't read their Bible. They don't spend time in prayer. They're not fully, even remotely devoted to God. But we want to dedicate our baby. Why do you want to do that? Because they want to sprinkle a little bit of religion on top of what they're doing as a way to harness or control God's power. They want their kid to grow up to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And so if we just go do the religious thing, you know, maybe God will bless. We'll get, you know, good luck. It's like a rabbit's foot. It's like good juju, you know. You... I see it all the time when, when I was in youth ministry. Uh, I was a youth pastor for six years, and, and parents would come, and they would say, I want you to baptize my child. I want you to baptize my son. I want you to baptize my daughter. And I would turn and look at their, their middle school or the high school and say, you know, uh, what is baptism? And the kid would go, I don't know. <laughs> well, do you want to get baptized? I guess. Well, you don't even know what baptism is. Why are you, I mean, what, what does it mean to passionately follow Jesus? Yeah. Well, I don't know. So what the parent was asking me to do was to, again, harness God's power so that their kid might grow up to be wealthy, healthy, and happy, to harness this religious activity, to sprinkle a little bit of religion in what they're already doing. Do you see how ridiculous this way of thinking is? It's absolutely absurd, yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. I want to ask you this morning to listen to the words of Jesus. And you, you ask yourself, is Jesus cool with us living our lives however we want to and just sprinkling in a little bit of religion all the way? Okay, just, just, just a little bit of religion. I mean, you don't have to get crazy. with. Don't be a total Bible thumper. Don't go, don't go all the way. Don't be crazy with it. Just a little bit of religion is fine. Let's listen to the words of Jesus. And you ask yourself, do you think Jesus is cool with that way of living? Listen to the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Jesus said, what? <laughs> do not think I have come to bring peace. I thought peace was his thing. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Again, we're reading the words of Jesus. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Does that sound like you can sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on what you're already doing? Does that sound like you can have one foot over here in the world and one foot over here in, in the church? Does it sound like you can just kind of be a backseat Christian? I attend occasionally. I might pray. I think I've got a Bible somewhere. Or does that verse sound like to you Jesus is asking for your whole life? Jesus here is clearly saying there's no in the middle. There's no in between. You are for me or against me. You are 100% following me with your whole life or you're 100% rejecting me. What's happening here is that these people are worshiping other gods. They are not obeying God. And all they're trying to do is harness God's power, sprinkle a little bit of religion on whatever battle they're fighting, and hopefully uh, God will bless them and, and save them. Look back at the text. Here is their solution. Let, I'm in verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, it's interesting the language that they use here. The covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us. So is it the ark or God that they want to save them? Well, it's certainly not clear in the text. But we can assume they probably just think if they bring the ark, they'll be fine. Now, as you know, the ark was a wooden box. It was covered in gold. It had rings on the side where poles would go through, and you could lift it up and carry it. On the top, there were angels or cherubs uh, with their wings outstretched. And inside this box was the, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets uh, which had the Ten Commandments uh, written on them. Now, the reason that they think it's a good idea to go get the box is because when they had entered into the Promised Land, if you remember, there was that great city there called Jericho, and Jericho had the big walls. You guys know the story. They marched around it, and the Ark of the Covenant went out ahead of them as they marched around the city, and then the walls fell down, and they were victorious in battle. So they're thinking back to what had happened then. They're like, dude, the Ark worked then. Let's go get it. Maybe it will, it will work now. Their logic is get the box, get God's power. Sadly, their solution is not, we were defeated. Maybe somebody should go talk to Samuel. Again, we see Samuel here in the first verse, and he's mentioned nowhere else in the chapter. It's almost as if Samuel is standing over to the side quietly, just kind of twiddling his thumbs like, no, okay. <laughs> While they're over here, like making their own plans, doing their own thing, going their own way. And Samuel is altogether ignored. Again, this is terribly sad because look at the end of chapter 3. The end of chapter 3 says this, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and, the Lord, and, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. If you're going to ask anybody's advice on what to do, it's probably Samuel. Yet they ignore him altogether, right? They knew if they were to ask Samuel what they needed to do, he likely would have said, hey, stop worshiping other gods. Hey, obey God. That, that's, 
likely what he would have said. We know that that's likely what he said because that's exactly what he does say in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. He says this, and Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you return to the Lord with your whole heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. But they didn't want to hear that. That's not what they wanted to hear, so they don't consult Samuel. They just go and get the box. Hopefully, it will help us. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. The, the, the author of 1 Samuel is almost like setting you up for the switch. Look, look at, at verse 4. It's this big buildup, right? So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. I mean, it's, it's this, like, here it comes. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there. Womp, womp. This great buildup of the power, the Lord of Hosts. The, the Lord of Hosts? Yes. The Lord of Hosts who controls the hosts of heaven. The mighty warriors of heaven with swords and light and thunder and fire and fury. Angels who can destroy entire nations. That Lord of hosts, the Lord of power. And then there's Hophni and Phinehas. The two guys who had exploited God's people. The two guys who were sleeping with the women in the temple. The two guys who had eaten all of the food from the sacrifice that was supposed to be there for God. They had taken the sacrifice. These, these evil men, you have this holy God honoring the Ark of the Covenant and Hophni and Phinehas. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage, and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have become to you. Be men and fight. So they enter into the camp with this box, and the Israelites are really pumped up about it. They get really excited. Again, they believe if you got the box, you got God's power. It has nothing to do with obeying him, following him, giving your life to him. Just sprinkle a little bit of religion right on top of our war, and we're going to win. And they get this mighty shout, and the shout is so terrifying that the Philistines get scared. Now, they get scared even though they had previously just won the battle, didn't they? They just killed 4,000 of their men. But they hear this shout, and they become terrified. Now, they get some details wrong in here. Did you see that? The, these pagan Philistines don't really get all of the details right. Look at verse 7. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Right? There is 
one God. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They, no, the, okay. They were in Egypt when they were struck with all the plagues, and then they went into the wilderness. So, so they got the details wrong, but their fear is correct, is it not? Their, their fear is correct to, to fear the might and the power of a holy God who loves and serves and protects his people. Their, their fear is absolutely appropriate. If you're taking notes, sadly, there will be many people who acknowledge the existence and power of God, yet refuse to follow him. Many of you likely have family members if, if, or, or coworkers, and you, and you might ask them, hey, you believe in God? Yeah. You believe he's powerful? Yeah. Do you follow him with your whole life? Well, no. Again, this is the great tragedy that many people will believe in the existence of God. As a matter of fact, most people believe in the existence of God. Go, go do your research. Go study the numbers. The, the people who are like true atheists, actual atheists, I mean, it's like 0.05%. It's, it's something very, very small. There, there are very, very few actual atheists. Most people believe in some type of God, and most people believe that that God is powerful. But so few will actually follow him with their lives. And that's exactly what's happening here. These Philistines, they're afraid of God, yet they will not bow the knee to him. So someone pipes up in the camp of the Philistines, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews. And they go out and they, they fight them. So despite the fear, they charge into battle. So are these guys incredibly stupid, incredibly brave, or both? I'll let you decide. Verse 10 through 11, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated with the power of the Ark of the Covenant supposedly there. They're defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a very great slaughter. Listen to this, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the Ark of God was captured. It was captured. The the thing where God's presence was said to dwell, the thing where the Ten Commandments written on stone were there, the box with the cherubim, with the angels that were spread out where they would sprinkle blood on top of the most holy thing that they had was captured by these pagans. How is this happening? And the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas died. I mean, this, this, is, this is incredible. We can, we can read this as kind of a matter-of-fact type of way. Like, this is just historical record about a battle, just like we would read about the War of 1812 or World War II or the Vietnam War. You know, just we're reading these statistical facts. But you must understand that God is orchestrating history to unfold his redemptive plan. You have to, when you get into the Old Testament, you have to stop and remember, God is unfolding his historical redemptive plan to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sins. So how does this get us there? That's what we always must ask when we get into the Old Testament. You can really get bogged down in, in these type of accounts as you're reading on and on, especially if you get into Leviticus and like all kind of stuff. 
you have to remember this is God's plan, his unfolding historical plan, which he unfolded over thousands of years so that 2,000 years ago, Jesus would show up on the scene and die in our place for our sins so that we might be saved. So, so don't just read over this as, okay, and 30,000 soldiers died, so on and so forth, let's move along. We must remember. So now we ask, <clears throat> why did God defeat them? Why did God allow for his ark to be taken away? Why did God allow for his name to be defamed in such a way? Well, it was clearly because of their sin of commission. We just saw that these guys are worshiping other gods. That's why Samuel had to tell them to put away, put away your other gods, put away the Ashtaroth and all that other craziness you're doing. So it was their sin of commission. It was also their sin of omission. These two evil priests, Hophni and Phinehas, nobody had stood up to them. Nobody had kicked their tails out of the temple and instituted a new priesthood. This is a nation who is guilty of a sin of commission and a sin of omission. So if you're taking notes, you cannot have the power of God without having to obey God. That's how it works. You cannot have the power of God. They ran into battle thinking that God was with them, thinking that they had harnessed the power of God, and they were literally dead wrong. You cannot have the power of God without having to obey God. Listen, God is not a lucky rabbit's foot. Never assume, never assume because you have done some type of religious activity that God must now act in your favor. Listen to me, church family. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. God's power cannot be manipulated by human activities, by my church attendance, by my Bible reading, by my prayer, by my fasting, or any other religious activity. God's power is just that, God's power. And so I would say this as a side note, beware of churches or ministries that say we're going to have a healing service. While I believe that people can be miraculously healed to say or to presume that God is going to show up and heal, we're going to call it a healing service and people are going to be healed would be to presume upon the power of God and it is a grave mistake. Verse 11, and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Samuel's prophecy had come true. Samuel's prophecy from chapter 3, which we read, had come true, which again further establishes him as a prophet uh, that speaks for God. And so they thought that God was, this, this God box was going to be their tactical edge, right? That, that's what the Ark of the Covenant was their. It was their advantage. It was their tactical edge as they charged into battle, and it cost them their life. Again, if you're taking notes, do you view God as a tactical advantage or ultimately important? This is the grave error. You know, God's useful. He's useful. Political uh, politicians will often think, you know, hey, God's useful. We know there's a large voting block of Christians, and so if I just tell people I'm a Christian or, you know, read a verse or two on the stage you know, God's an advantage over my opponents. A, a, a guy who's in business might think, you know, I, I'll tell people, you know, we, we have a Christian business and, you know, we'll get more customers if we just tell people we're a Christian. They'll think we're honest. And, and I wonder if our hearts don't 
shift back into that as we go throughout our daily lives, right? If, man, if, if I'll just, oh, I'm just going to read the Bible to my kid, and hopefully they'll stop being so crazy. <laughs> you know, if, if, we'll just, if we'll just shoot up a prayer to God here and there, maybe it'll save our marriage. If we'll, if we'll just go to church, you know, maybe, my, maybe everything will get fixed. If, if, I just, if I just show up to church, all this mess will just get fixed. That, that is a way of using God as a tactical advantage, not loving God deeply with your heart. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came to, and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I'm from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there, was been, there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. This this man comes running in and his clothes are torn and there's dirt on his head. We can assume that he is disheveled from the battle, but this is also uh, a part of their uh, ritual or cultural mourning. So he would have torn his clothes and intentionally put dust on his head to show that he was in this state of mourning. And you can almost imagine him running in and from far off, the people in the city would have seen him and seen him in his state of mourning and would have already known how the battle turned out. And if Eli could see, he would have saw the runner and would have known how the battle turned out. But we know that Eli can't see. We find Eli again. What is he doing? Sitting down. We met Eli and he was sitting down. The next time we saw Eli, he was laying down. And now he's sitting down again. Again, this is a picture of Eli just not being a man of action. He doesn't go after his sons. He doesn't remove his sons from the priesthood. He is not a man of action. He is a man who sits by and just allows things to happen. But we've also noted that Eli is also a very confusing character because while he has lots of vice, he also has virtue. Here his heart is trembling. Why? Because of the Ark of the Covenant. Everyone else, including the Philistines, believed that the God box was the key to their victory. Why was he scared? Why is he trembling while everyone else thought this was a great idea? What does Eli know that the Philistines and the rest of the Israelites don't know? Well, he knew the prophecy that Samuel had told him about the death of his two sons. And he knew that they had broken covenant with God, and therefore he was terrified about the fullness of what God was going to do. And so there is, let's just get this picture in your mind. You have to see the irony of what's happening in the text. The man who is blind is the one who is the lookout for the runner who is coming. The blind guy. It's like, couldn't we find a better candidate for the lookout other than the old guy who's blind? You see, Eli is a picture of the spiritual state of affairs of Israel. With all of their religious efforts, 
with all of their sprinkling of religion on their efforts, their spirituality was worthless. In the same way, the guy who was watching for the runner to bring in the news is totally blind. It's sad. It's sad. All of their religion is worthless. Just like Eli being lookout is worthless. The news kind of comes in four terrifying steps as the messenger tells Eli what happens. He said that they fled. There was a great defeat. Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. Look at verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. It was not the news of his son's death that killed him, but it was the news that the ark had been captured. Because of their disobedience, the very presence of God was taken away. Make no mistake, it was not the Philistines who were in control that day, but God allowed his ark to be taken as a sign of his punishment on his children. So what does this story teach us? Again, if you're taking notes, we can never assume the blessings of God when we refuse the commands of God. We can never assume the blessings of God when we refuse the commands of God. We can never say, well, God's going to bless me. After all, I'm a, I'm a good person. I go to church sometimes. I got, I got baptized when I was in high school. I mean, I'm not a Bible thumper. I don't go every Sunday. Of course, I'm not perfect, and I make up my own rules for myself. I am my own master, but God is going to bless me. Don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. This story moves quickly from the battlefield where there is a great defeat back into the city of Shiloh. And so now we're going to zoom lens in on a house inside of the city of Shiloh in verse 19 as we draw to a conclusion. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. She bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, do not be afraid for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Again, she needed to invert that to get it correct. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured and what really happened was God's glory had departed and therefore the ark was captured. Here we see that she is having a child and again, the birth of children is supposed to be a joyous occasion, a time for celebration, but this birth is surrounded by so much death. First, the killing of 4,000, then the slaughter of 30,000, then the death of Hophni and Phinehas, and then the death of Eli. This is a sad moment. This boy was supposed to be the carrying on of the priesthood. He was supposed to be the next in line because now Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And what these women who are around are saying, it's okay, it's a boy. The, 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 the priesthood is going to carry on. And she says, no, no, his name will be Ichabod, which means the glory is gone or the, the glory 
has departed. Again, the point of the story couldn't be more clear. It's actually repeated. Did you see the repetition? Here at the end, it's repeated for emphasis. And she named the boy Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Why? Because the ark of God had been captured. Look in verse 22. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel. It's repeated in 21 and in 22. You can actually trace back through and note how many times it says the ark had been captured, the ark had been captured, the glory was departed, the glory has been departed. This is the the repetition that's showing us the emphasis of the text. So it's clear to us to, to understand that the glory had departed. The clear application of the text is when you ignore the word of God, when you disobey the commands of God, he removes his glory. That's it. That's the clear application from the text. When you ignore the words of God, again, Samuel was mentioned in the first verse and we hear nothing of him the whole rest of the chapter. Samuel is standing over there silently as a representation of the word of God. They do not consult him. They do not look to God's word. They ignore him altogether. And therefore God removes his glory. Sadly, listen to me, sadly, that is happening in churches all across this county and all across this state and all across this country. People are abandoning God's word and therefore Ichabod is being written on the doorpost of many churches. There are churches in this county that have decided to not teach the wrath of God, to not teach God's laws about sexuality, to not teach God's laws about how homes should be ordered, to not teach God's rules that are controversial. And you know what's happening to those churches? Their congregations dwindle and leave, and the buildings are empty shells. Just travel around to churches in this county. Travel around to churches in the state. Travel around to churches in this country. And you wonder why people are leaving the church in droves. It's because many preachers have abandoned God's word, and so God has written Ichabod on the doorposts of their church. May it never be so at Gospel Community Church. Friends, while this is a sad story, we must see it in its proper place. This is a terribly sad story. I mean, there's no, like, like how do we redeem this at the end? Verse 22, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. The end. How do we redeem this story or how do we find any type of light in it at all? Well, the light that's in this story is because the story continues on. The light that's in this story is because there is a chapter 5, there is a chapter 6, there is a chapter 7 where Samuel says to them, put away the other gods, the glory is restored. And so there is good news, there is hope. The only bad news is that the people of Israel continue to go back and forth. They continue to worship other gods, and so God removes his glory again. And so there's this repetition of them worshiping other gods, and God removes his glory. They find themselves in a terrible state. They cry out to God for forgiveness, and he forgives them and restores his glory only for them to worship other gods and him to remove his glory again. It happens all throughout the Old Testament. It just, it keeps happening again and again and again. And so where is the good news? We need good news this morning, don't we? We need good news. And so what we see here at the very end of this chapter is the birth of a son And this son's name is Ichabod. God has departed. 
And this son who is born, who is named Ichabod, God has departed, is actually in an anticipation for, it makes us long for, the birth of another son. And this son's name was not Ichabod. This son's name was Emmanuel. Not God has departed, but God with us. And so while this story ends in this dark, deep tragedy, the story continues on and it explodes with light. It explodes with God's glory. You see, this whole story is about the presence of God being removed. So the question we ask this morning is, when will God's presence come among us and stay forever? That's what we want. We, we don't want for our disobedience to cause the removal of God's glory. We want the presence, the blessing, and the power of God to be here among us and to never depart from us. And so what we need is the birth of another son. We need Emmanuel. We need the problem to be solved. We need for not our obedience to be the basis of God's glory staying with us, but we need the work of Jesus' obedience to be the reason God's glory stays among us. And so in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the glory comes and dwells among us. Just listen to this, John 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory, the presence, and the blessing has come to us in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Listen to John 17. You guys aren't excited as, as, as I am about this. John 17, this is the high priestly prayer when Jesus is praying to God the Father in the, in the garden. He says this, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is the one who steps into human history. He steps into our mess where our disobedience has caused God to remove his glory, Jesus steps in bringing the glory. John 17, verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. He steps in bringing the glory and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. John 17, 24, just because you asked for some more verses. Father, I desire that they also who are with you give, uh, give them to me may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. All of this is leading up to Jesus going to the cross, putting his glory on full display. The cross is the display of God's glory. While it looks like defeat, while it looks like shame, while it looks terrible, it's actually the victory. It's actually the glory of God being put on display because on the cross, Satan and demons were put to open shame. And so because of our faith on that glory, we might have Christ inside of us and therefore have his glory. That's why the Apostle Paul says in uh, Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. So the cross replaces the ark. So, so uh, you know, Indiana Jones, a great movie, I'm glad they went out looking for the ark, but you don't have to go out looking for the ark because the cross has replaced the ark. Now God's presence is with his people. It is not based on their obedience, but it's based on the work of Jesus on the cross. So I don't know what Philistines you're fighting today. I don't know the battles that rage in your home, in your heart, at your job. I don't know. I know some of them, but I don't know all of them. But what I do know 
is that we can have confidence that in victory or perceived defeat, Jesus is with us. Jesus has not left us. The glory has not departed. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.